Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is your host, Matt Zemek. Uh, Saqib Ali uh, hosted uh, a podcast earlier this week in late August with Nick Lester. You want to check that out uh, at, at Saqib's Twitter feed and also the Accent underscore Tennis Twitter feed. But today's episode, it's an in-house roundtable. Uh, we have Mert Ertunga and Andrew Burton, our, uh, our in-house analysts, uh, to not just cover the Western and Southern Open, Cincy Tennis, and the upcoming U.S. Open, but also just to talk about tennis in a pandemic, this extraordinary, genuinely unprecedented moment in tennis history. And it's a situation in which the COVID-19 dramas in many ways are, if not overshadowing, they're certainly parallel with the tennis drama. We're wondering how these tournaments are going to unfold in a medical sense and in a public safety sense, as well as in a tennis sense. And so we're certainly going to get discussion on the COVID-19 part of all this and the tennis that awaits us uh, after many months off. So uh, I'm going to start with you, Andrew Burton. And, you know, I personally am finding it hard to naturally adjust here to these circumstances. Uh, I I sense that you might feel something similar. Yeah, very much so. I think for a lot of us, we remember back to... February and um, you know even January the early inklings uh, coming out of China then spreading first of all to Europe and eventually to North America and then around the world but possibly the first sign for the tennis world about how significant this was going to be was when Indian Wells was cancelled about a week before the the tournament proper was was due to start or maybe even you know three or four days before the tournament was due to start and uh in that time you know there probably isn't a single human being on on the planet whose lives haven't been interrupted substantially uh i last went back into my office uh in march uh i've been working from home since then as of many people but for athletes, it's been an even more disruptive time. Uh, there's been attempts to try and um, you know, keep athletes going through the crisis. But now we're at what feels like an inflection point with uh, an ATP Masters 1000 tournament being played on American soil in New York and then the the US Open to follow. So this is some kind of an inflection point, but which way we go from here, I I truly can't forecast. So Mert, uh, you know, you have background as a tennis player, tennis coach, tennis historian, tennis, and now you're a tennis analyst. So you wear so many different hats and I just want to give you the floor. You know, if you were giving like a state of tennis address at this extraordinary unprecedented moment in the sport's existence uh just you know what would you say we're obviously going to dive into particulars as we go along but like what's kind of your broad overview at this moment right now yes i I think we're swimming in a pool of unknowns uh matt and uh and i in my opinion many of the players and coaches are also swimming in that same pool as as the fans the wall for the fans it's much easier they have uh you know regular lives or other occupations but for players and coaches and everyone involved in the uh, week-to-week operation of tennis is a much more uh, complicated, uh, nuanced uh, puzzle to solve. 
and uh, the, but in this in this uh, pool of unknowns are are factors like you know for example I'm listening to interviews by some players over the last uh, two or three weeks in anticipation of the restart and many of them are are making comments such as uh, I've had a great preparation season uh, we had the I benefited from this in the sense that I spent some time with my family. Uh, and also I, you know, I practiced at the local course with my coach or, or this or that. In other words, everyone is doing something that they're not used to doing in the, in the, the otherwise on the tour. They're not, normally they would be traveling, maybe having a couple of weeks off here and there where they can stay home and practice on their familiar local, you know, courts where they're used to practicing with their coach. And then get back on the on the road, play tournaments, stay in hotels, uh, practice. Uh, you know, once they lose in a tournament, maybe practice the next two or three days until the next tournament or or the week after. But in any case, all that routine is out the window, and they're finding themselves in a in a long. They found themselves in a long off season, and uh, for many of them, it's it's a different question how to manage an off season of, uh, you know, four or five months. Andrew was just talking about not having been in the office since March. Uh, I, I haven't been in my, in my regular life uh, office either since March. So the, the, that's just a small adjustment for people like us. But for players, you know, again, when players say, uh, I've had a good preparation, see, it, 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 it helped me focus on my conditioning, et cetera. Yes, that's all good and well, but how will it actually affect when they come back on the court? And I think we're going to find a lot of spotty play, uh, a lot of uh, uh, maybe an upset or two. And I think for the sake of U.S. Open, it's, it's, uh, it's very, very good uh, that Cincy is taking place because some of the players are going to find out about themselves during Cincinnati tournament held in New York and are going to perhaps adjust some things and a few things in their practice over the next five, six, seven days or whatever they may have if they're out of the tournament or, or, or if they go late into the tournament then they know they've done something well or something right. And eventually for the US Open, I'm expecting the level of tennis or at least the level of consistency among the players to be higher, clearly higher than what, what we may see here in Cincinnati. Okay, so um, I'll go back to, we'll, we'll go back and forth on this. So you'll both be able to weigh in on the various questions I'm going to ask because these are such universal, broad questions that everyone in the tennis world wants to know about. So whenever I ask a question, it's, it's going to be to both of you, not just one. So I'm going to throw it back to Andrew. So in this COVID-19 context, you know, we're, we're obviously wondering if a bad scenario happens and there are various ranges of bad. So let's say that, you know, a match involves two players they both get COVID-19. You know, how, how does that affect a tournament's decision-making, you know, at the, at, in terms of the tournament director level, at the administrative level? Uh, you know, if, if certain scenarios happen, uh, you know, what, what should the administrators and the leaders uh, be prepared to do? Like what, and, and I think attached to that, Andrew, and of course, Mert's going to get a crack at this as well. You know, what should be the contingency plans and what are you perhaps most concerned about in, in a COVID-19 context here? Well, if we limit it to just a particular tournament, 
for the U.S. Open and for Cincinnati, there, there are uh, lots of preparations that have been put in place to, to limit the potential exposure for players, for coaches, for other staff who are there. Um, but we're still seeing that uh, players are being affected. Uh, Kei Nishikori had to withdraw from Cincinnati uh, before it started because he tested positive. And uh, I believe Peya and uh, Delian were essentially withdrawn from Cincinnati because of contact uh, with someone who tested positive uh, in their uh, in their entourage, I think in their in their training staff. So you 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 have to reckon that there's a significant chance that uh, a player or a member of their their group is going to test positive uh, during one of the two tournaments. And one of the things that I think that um, is very important here is that as we're finding again throughout society, the, the incubation period and the fact that people can spread the disease while they're pre-symptomatic or while they're asymptomatic means that you have to be very, very careful about monitoring what kind of contacts people have had. So there is a you know, there's the potential that it that it could be limited and it could essentially function as an injury withdrawal or an illness withdrawal, which we've had in, in tennis tournaments in the past. I, again, I remember in Indian Wells, there was a stomach bug doing the rounds and, and several players had to withdraw during the tournament or, or competed at, at levels below what they were capable of doing. The The danger comes if there is something like the ill-fated Adria tour where players you know don't follow distancing rules perhaps you know a, a group of, of players go to a bar together or something like that and you have the potential for a you know wider transmission but I'm I, I think the chances that the the tournament is going to get either tournament is going to get derailed because of the spread of illness I think I think that probability is very low. Mert, Mert take a crack at that and some of your concerns. What plans? How you how you'd evaluate the USTA's plans to this point? Um, things that that need to be considered down the line. Um, map out your overview of of the U.S. Open and and what's being done and what you're worried about and what what you think needs to be emphasized. Yes, I think the, the USTA's plan, I'm not talking about the first one they tried to come up with a long time ago, but the, US, the USTA plan as of now is quite reasonable. As, and as Andrew said, uh, you know, because the, the, the two tournaments are on the same side and you're able to create a, a, a bubble and it's not, a, it's, you know, it's not one of these uh, completely strict, strict bubbles either, but it's, it's good in the sense that the players are, are, are mostly supervised and, and uh, if any of them tries to, you know, or, or if any of them by accident or what have you, intentionally or, inten or unintentionally breaks any of the rules, the USTA, I believe, would be strict in, uh, in imposing the necessary sanctions and take the necessary action. 
So I think it was, you know, trying to, both tournaments being in the same place, everybody being supervised, the numbers remaining small, no, no crowd. Uh, I see a much lesser chance of something unfortunate happening in this tournament than in the future. Once you involve traveling in, traveling to different continents and to different countries, it becomes a, a completely a, a unique circumstance where all of a sudden uh, question marks multiply. But here it's, it's manageable. Uh, the, 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 the one detail that I would like to touch on that you mentioned is, you know, what happens if somebody catches, uh, catches coronavirus anyway? I think, uh, I think it would be disastrous from the point of the USDA if one of the big names caught it and had to withdraw from the tournament during the tournament. That would be the worst case scenario. And, uh, and, of, and of course, along with that person, that person that withdrawing, who else do you actually withdraw? Their entourage or uh, have they been in touch with a, with a player or how you, you know, you cannot watch every player every single time in the, you know, in the various parts of the, of the facility at the Billie Jean King Tennis Center. I mean, have they been in close contact with any other player? Then that becomes a big question mark. I think if one of the lower ranked players catches it and they're so-called, uh, you know, excused from the tournament, then still it's okay. But from the USTA's perspective and PR perspective, the, the, the worst possible thing to happen would be one of the big names, one of the marquee names actually catching the, uh, the coronavirus during the tournament. I don't know what would happen then. And then what happens if all of a sudden uh, you have two, three, four, five players catch it in a matter of, uh, you know, three or four days. And I'm, and of course I'm talking in the most cynical possible outcomes here, very low, low probability of this happening. But, uh, but I, I think the tournament would only be, would only suffer significantly if any of these worst case scenarios happen. Otherwise, I think the, uh, the, 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 uh, the tournament is going to place is going to take place fine without many glitches. And I'm looking forward to seeing some good tennis. One thing that I'll, can I, can I just follow up? Sure. I think that, that something that is, that is going to play out over the next year to a year and a half or so is a sort of a, something that the, the coronavirus seems to be shining a light on, which is the, um, the inequities in society, uh, that it's hitting minorities harder, it's hitting poor folks harder, and you can get a tournament at the level of the US Open or uh, a Cincinnati level tournament being able to take place with extraordinary precautions. But then once you go uh, to the, the smaller tournaments, they're just not going to be able to do this. And when you get beyond the, the, the top level players, they're not going to be able to participate in the same way that, uh, that people at the, the US Open are going to be able to participate. So one of the things I think that we can't forget is that the, the, the major level and the, the Masters 1000 level 
are going to be pretty unique. And it, I, I think that there, there really is a big question mark about a lot of the tournaments going forward, apart from just the, the, the next three weeks or so. Okay, so that invites that invites a batch of questions on its own. Uh, I guess you know, just addressing that, Andrew, what should the player councils and the governing bodies and the various uh, power brokers in tennis be discussing in order to address that particular concern? So I would say that that everyone has to be looking at this as a as a long haul problem rather than a something that will be done with in a few months. Which I think that back in the the, the February March time frame, there was a sense of pot- potentially things are going to be interrupted for a short period of time, but then you know with any luck we'll have. NFL, college football in the fall, those plans have gone out the window. So there has to be some really serious long-term thinking about what tennis looks like and other sports uh, to enable us to get through another six months, a year, 18 months, whatever it takes to, to, to be able to reestablish uh, a framework where people can start going to tennis tournaments again without these extraordinary precautions. So you have to put in place very, very long-term plans, I think. Yeah, to, to follow up on um, Andrew's point too, uh, you know, for example, it would be okay if, um, if uh, you could keep it at a regional level or did this, this idea came up, in fact, I believe a, a month or so ago, where maybe the, for a little while, tours should consider going on a regional level, uh, you know, p- playing a group of tournaments in a certain region together and not necessarily travel globally. And, uh, and I'm not sure where, where that ever went. I obviously, it didn't go anywhere. But that, would be, that probably would be safer than players traveling just all over the world. I mean, just, to, just a, a quick look at the... Uh, uh, you know, at the ITF calendar. And we have to keep in mind also that in some countries, they don't necessarily find that they don't find it necessary to put players in, in bubbles. And then, you know, they feel like they're, they're, they're done with the, with the coronavirus and, 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 and they don't really want, they don't really have strict uh, uh, measures like we do in the United States here. So, you know, when you have, for example, in, in the, you know, there's a tournament in Italy uh, next week, uh, you know, a small scale tournament, ITF tournament, and then there's in, in the same week there's one in Netherlands, and then the the week after there's one in Portugal, and there's one in Spain, and uh, and one in Prague. So uh, so you know you got to, even though they're all in Europe, we're talking you we're talking about players traveling from uh, country to country, and just like Andrew said, those tournaments are not going to have the uh, the, the, the strict um, guidelines and, uh, and, and, you know, the setup in place to, uh, to keep an eye on the players or, or test them perhaps uh, frequently. So, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, I think the next, what we're living right now, Cincinnati and New York, uh, carries far less question marks than, than, the, than do what the rest of the term is coming up after that. 
Okay, and, and I real and I you know we have there are certain things we have to cover in a conversation, but I also want a conversation to breathe organically. And right now, the organic path of this conversation has really gone beyond Cincinnati and the U.S. Open. So I do want to kind of continue with this because you know it's relevant. It's highly relevant to the sports future. So Andrew, I break to you first, and then back to Mert for for his response. So let's say we're in December and. We don't have a really firm assurance that a vaccine is just around the corner. What should tennis do in terms of its 2021 calendar, point system, and the other elements of the infrastructure of ten professional tennis for 2021? How should the various considerations be handled if we don't have a vaccine near the end of the year? And it's apparent that it's going to be a longer haul. Yeah, and, and I genuinely think that that is plan a rather than plan b at the moment the i've not i've not read anything that suggests having you know a widely distributed vaccine uh before the middle of next year is is is, is reasonable so you're you're talking first of all how does the australian open happen if it happens and then you you start to think about the the next part of the, the the tennis season and i th i think that the the overall goal should be what can what can we do to see that the sport as a whole reemerges when we come out on the other side um rather than just safeguarding a few crown jewels and giving opportunities to the very top players. This was a, this was a theme of the conversation that I had with uh, Mark Petschy, you know, all the way back in March, I believe, where this, this question of the, the have-nots as well as the haves was really important. And that the have-nots in this sense includes the, the 250 level tournaments and the challenges and the futures tournaments, as well as players ranked from, you know, anywhere from 150 down to, to 600 or so, who are, you know, the, the, the foundation of the game. You don't get to be a top level player until you've progressed through those ranks. Many people who, you know, scratch out a living from tennis still scratch out a living at the sort of 200 to the 400 level or so. So how, how do you focus the attention of everyone involved in the sport in making sure that you don't get to, you know, late 2021 and find that, uh, you know, you've managed to, to keep 60 to 80 people uh, on the women's tour and the men's tour uh, engaged and, and working, but the rest of the tour is, or, or the, the, the rest of the sport is decimated. I'll just, yeah, I'll just keep going out right, right where Andrew left off there because he, he, uh, he covered it very well and, and he touches on a very important topic. Uh, but uh, to combine that with what you just mentioned, your question, Matt, about uh, you know, if December comes, then what happens? I think if there are no improvements in the situation, and you know, uh, and Andrew's talking about next summer, 
for uh, for finding a vaccine. So if they, you know, if once December comes and they and we're not really uh, a step or two ahead of where we are now, in other words, we're still swimming in the same waters. Uh, in my opinion, there's there the the tennis powers that be need to come up with a new structure for for 2021 and and some sort of regional scheduling and uh, you know keeping players in the same region for maybe for a package of uh, seven, eight tournaments, couple of tur you know, couple of months. I don't know how the ins and outs or the logistics of that uh, would be put in place, but it's nothing, it's not something undoable and trying to keep the current uh, structure and organization pattern of tournaments for 2021 Without it, without a significant improvement come December or January, I think would be foolish and would be disastrous for 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 players that are uh, below you know top 70, 80, any or players ranked in the 200 to 500 level uh, in the in the rankings. So, what would some of these uh, possible solutions look like? But for example, you know, should Charleston, which is a WTA event in South Carolina, you know, early April, should Charleston invite ATP players? Should the Houston Clay Court Tournament in April invite WTA players? And you know, and and just within North America and the South American uh, swing, just has South American players, so on and so forth, and that and that tournaments that have only one tour. Uh, that they invite the other tour what what would i mean i'm just kind of tossing those things out there i'm not saying like that should be done but you know what what would some of these possible solutions look like andrew what what anything that strongly comes to your mind and then i'll pass it over to mert oh I, you know i like the the idea of 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 focusing regionally the other thing that I keep on thinking this, that this isn't just a tennis problem. It's, it, 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 it elevates up to a societal problem. Uh, there's, a, there's a quote that I'm, I'm, I'm looking for. I had it on my, my laptop uh, just before we started this, this podcast. I'm going to try and pull it up. It's, I think it was a baseball player who said... Um, Sports are the reward of a functioning society. And he, he has a long passage that, that, that is, is well worth reading, but that quote, sports are the reward of a functioning society. And I think it's very, very hard to, to put a, a strong sporting calendar together if we're in a situation like the one that, that we've been in. So I live in Texas. Uh, Mert, are, are you uh, in Georgia? I'm in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, I'm sorry. Uh, but we, you know, we've just gone through a, a horrendous two months or so. And I think that if we're, if we're in a situation similar to the one that they're in in New York at the moment, where they've, they've pushed the levels of uh, transmission of the virus really far down, then you can start to, to think about playing sports over, over a, a period of time without the, the calendar being disrupted. Uh, and and you, you can start to lay plans in place. 
Um, the, the thing that I'm most concerned about, particularly from a United States perspective, is that we, we just don't have the infrastructure at the moment on a continental basis to, to drive that down. And, and so what I'm hoping to see is that, you know, in Europe, in, in other parts of the world and in the United States, that we actually drive the transmission levels down to something where uh, it, it's manageable and it's manageable at a, at, a, at a regional level. And then at the top levels, what you're able to do is to, uh, you know, potentially have the kind of events like the ones that we're seeing in Cincinnati and, and, and New York. But that, that expression, uh, sports is a reward of a functioning society, that's, that's one that, that rings like a bell for me. And to, to add to Andrew's point, uh, once again, Andrew covered very well, but to, to get back specifically just what you asked, uh, Matt, about how, how the tour should manage. I mean, if you're going to go, if you're going to make a major overhaul of a calendar, you know, go with a regional thing or, or adjust in, that, in, in the same fashion, uh, I'm not sure if the effort should be made necessarily to, because you, you, the way you put it was, should the Charleston tournament add the, the you know, bring in the men and, uh, and should Houston tournament bring in the women? Um, I think as long as, uh, you know, the tournaments that have both men and women can be grouped together in, in the calendar, just like Cincinnati and US Open right here, that's being done. But uh, when you have a, 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 an event like, say, Kitzbühel men, or, or, or Charleston women or Istanbul Cup in, in, in Turkey, you know, you, you, I think to try to push a men's tournament into one of those or a women's tournament into one of those would be uh, a, big, uh, a big task. It, it might be better just to put, you know, some smaller men's tournaments in a row together in the calendar and some smaller women's tournaments in a row together in the calendar. And then still keep the big, um, you know, mass, the the um, the premier and master series that are played in the same, at the same side like Cincinnati, uh, grouped together with the majors where you both you have both men and women anyway. But this is of course, you know, all from the top of my head, just speculating on what needs to be done. But uh, but in any case, some type of grouping would be needed over an extended period of time. All right. So we've looked ahead to 2021 in terms of logistics and some of the big picture considerations tennis has needed to make. So let's now bring it back to what's in front of us. Uh, U.S. Open Cincinnati and really then also, you know, the move to Europe uh, later in September and in early October. So I want to ask this question to both of you, Andrew first, and that is, you know, what should be our measurement of success for the U.S. Open and Roland Garros in particular, and obviously, you know, an ideal scenario is, is you know, absolutely no one gets COVID-19. But, you know, let's let's look at kind of a more murky scenario in which, you know, a few players get it. The tournaments are able to be completed, but there's a complication in terms of players who uh, fly from the United States to Europe for Roland Garros. Um, they they get COVID and in, in, in the process of going over to Europe. And they're not able to play Roland Garros, uh, you know. So what what would represent like a reasonable measurement of success? Not not the ideal scenario because we all know what an ideal scenario looks like. But like what you know what are what's kind of like the dividing line between you know okay this this arrangement 
for all of its flaws, it worked out fundamentally well versus, you know, this, this really was a swing and a miss. Uh, those kinds of considerations. So Andrew, what, what would you say is a reasonable marker of success for the US Open and then the transition over to Europe for Rowan Garrow? Well, given that, that I thought that the, you know, the chances of having you know, really significant infectious breakout at Cincy slash US Open was pretty small. I'm going to stay with that and say that that success is going to be exciting tennis and some breakout stars and then semifinals and finals between strong players, memorable matches and and, and a memorable tournament. Uh, and I don't think that that's... Um, that's impossible. I know that a number of European players have chosen to focus more on clay. Uh, Stan Wawrinka just won a challenger tournament for the first time in God knows how long, but he's tuning up for Roland Garros. Nadal isn't, isn't playing in the, the US Open. So, you know, he's hoping to win his 417th French Open. Um, so, you know, good, strong events possibly breakout players. You never know, a young player might win uh, a major in the ATP in 2020. So that would be my measure of success. Mark? Yes, I'm, I, I'll go along with, with Andrew. I will, I will bring in one, um, a, bit of a, a, a bit of a cynical perspective. Uh, I realize it's, it's a bit of a negative perspective that I'm going to add to that. But, uh, and it's going to sound like a broken record because I just said this 20 minutes ago, but I, I think success depends on perception, on, on what uh, the, the public, the general public or, or tennis fans perceive. And, uh, and in this case, as long as none of the big tournaments have any of the marquee names catching the virus and, uh, and, and, um, and suffering from it or having to withdraw from it, and uh, there are no... Uh, COVID-related incidents in the second week of both majors. If anything at all, if anything comes up, it's during the first week. And then, you know, once the second week comes around, there are less players. It's even a more, it's even a safer bubble in that case. And we have good tennis, you know, in the quarterfinals, semifinals and finals. No big names, no marquee names uh, having to withdraw. And the same thing repeats again at the French Open then I think it'll be considered a success. So it's going to depend on the perception. One thing that I'll, I'll add to that is, and I think that, uh, yes, the perception is, is, is very important. I, you know, I've seen some matches played in the last few months, uh, but watching the, the Cincinnati um, tournament being played in New York right now, uh, in the Billie Jean King tennis center, but with no crowds. A U.S. Open with no fans is going to seem really, really strange. And so that's going to, to add to this question of, you know, is it, you know, is it a true U.S. Open? Is it an asterisk tournament? And my answer is you, you, you always want to say no asterisks, but it's going to seem weird, I think. So, well, I, you know, and... Andrew Burton is Mr. No Asterisks, so I have to follow up. I mean, what what things are you going to juggle in terms of how you weigh uh, what's going to happen at the U.S. Open? 
for me, basically, you win seven matches, you get to say you won a major. That's unless you went through qualies, in which case you've got to win more. But no, if you win seven matches, you get to say you won a major. That's, that's good enough for me. 100% okay. behind Andrew on that. All right. So, you know, when uh, in Sakib's podcast with Nick Lester, Nick said very specifically he thought the lack of fans was going to be a leveler. It's going to be an equalizer because the, the big player, the big time players, they know how to play in front of a packed house. They know how to handle the energy of the crowd, a, you know, a weighty moment. And then, you know, an underdog doesn't know how to handle that kind of pressure as well. Andrew, Mert, would like both of you to get a crack at it. Andrew first. Yeah, I, I, I think that the, the thing that the top players really are better at doing is, is managing their own emotions. And so how, that, how, how, how the tournament, the absence of fans in, in Cincinnati's case, most of the, the matches are being called by Hawkeye Live, so you don't have line judges. There won't actually be challenges, you know, where you've got, got Hawkeye Live. So, so managing your, your emotions is, is different. Uh, the thing that I expect to be more of a leveler, frankly, is just lack of play. Uh, for pretty much all of these players, they haven't played competitive matches for quite a while. And I, I would imagine that that, that is, is really going to, uh, to play out, that you, you may have people going to New York, you know, top level players who, you know, maybe lose a round of 32 or round of 16 match in, in Cincinnati, uh, Cincinnati slash New York. And, you know, they, they come into a major with next to no match play. Yeah, Mert. Um, yes, uh, no match play is probably the biggest factor too. I think also not, not having the crowd is going to uh, probably not be that much of a factor once the player plays a, his or her first match, right? I mean, it's going to be a, that, that first match is going to be a big adjustment. And then from that point on, the adjustment is not as much once you have that first or second match under your belt. So players that are players uh, participating in, in the Cincinnati tournament, once US Open begins, in my opinion, are going to have a slight advantage there over players that, uh, that arrive to US Open as their first tournament. But beyond that, it also depends on the player um, uh, or how you know, a certain player handles the, the idea of not having the crowd behind them. And then you know, there are, you have players who usually step onto the court and block everything out to begin with. Whether, you know, whether there's a big crowd or not, just walk, they just walk onto the court and they're focused on the task at hand. They, they manage to keep their, their mental bubble within the boundaries of the court right before where the spectators begin. And for those players, it's going to be a less complicated um, road from adjusting playing with crowd to without a crowd. It's, it's those other players who, uh, who, you know, who feel the impact of, of the crowd you know, rooting against them or for them, that's, for, for them, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. I mean, I think, for example, a, 
a player like uh, Kyrgios, okay, he's not playing, but uh, a player like Kyrgios, uh, or a player like Tsitsipas, who is playing, you know, for these types of players, the crowd reaction or, or what they hear, the vibes that they get from what's outside the boundaries of the actual tennis courts where the stands begin matter. And, uh, and, f- and for them, it's going to be a bit of an adjustment because they either draw energy from that or they draw energy in the sense that uh, they want to do well to st- in spite of them. Uh, and or if they're behind, say, 5-1 in a set and they start mounting a comeback, it's 5-2, 5-3, points to go up 5-4, and the crowd is going, going crazy. It's almost like a, 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 an assistant coach on the court carrying them through. Uh, for them, it's going to matter. But then, the, but then you have some other guys, you know, on the, and I'm talking just on the men's side here. And then you have some other guys like Struff, um, Milos Raonic, Kyle Edmund. You know, I'm not sure that these guys uh, depend on the crowd vibe or the feedback that they get from anyone, be, you know, beyond the, um, beyond the court's boundaries. So for, for those guys, I think it's going to be an easier adjustment. And I do believe they will have a bit of an advantage uh, over those that do get energy from the crowd until, you know, until the latter have two or three matches under their belt. Okay, so that invites the question of, you know, are there certain players who, you know, I mean, you know, tennis is is such an inner game. I mean, that's the Timothy Galway book from 1974, The Inner Game of Tennis. It is such a, a, a profoundly mental sport, how you carry yourself. So within this new environment, uh, do you do both of you have in mind a player or a group of players, can men or women, and and maybe both. And if you have uh, uh, something in mind for both the ATP and WTA, uh, do you have in mind a player who you know has has been known to have not handled pressure moments all that well, but then in this new context might be ready for a breakthrough for a surprising run? Andrew first. Um, I'm just saying no. Uh, uh, I'll I'll listen with interest to 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 what what Mert has to say, but this and he already mentioned some several players. I think to a certain extent, um, you know, the ATP number one player Novak Djokovic has uh, you know often appealed for crowd support, but then managed to to lift his play when he felt that he he didn't have it. Um, I I'm I'm really pushed to think of any individual players where where I think they'll they'll handle it on the evidence more or less well than others would. So I, I hard pass on this one. Hey, Mert. Okay, so you know, I mean, there are some players who obviously will not. I mean, Andrew just mentioned Novak Djokovic. You know, if Novak Djokovic is in the semi-final or the final of US Open, then it doesn't matter at that point whether there's crowd or there's not crowd. He's, he already knows that he's, got, you know, he's got a spot to win the tournament. And if he made it that far, uh, it hasn't affected him at all. And, and you know, when I'm thinking more, uh, you know, when I said the, uh, when I made my earlier comment, I'm, I'm thinking more in terms of players who may uh, rise above their own group of players or maybe who have a shot at doing having a career week or a career tournament 
uh, that may handle the situation better. And, and again, you know, I'm going to go back to, to, to a name that I mentioned, who, by the way, himself claims that, uh, that uh, he had a very good preparation period. And, uh, you know, take a guy like Milos Raonic, you know, had, if he doesn't have any injury issues through the U.S. Open, and, uh, and, and, and if we are to take him at his word that he's got, he had an excellent preparation period, he even went into details of, uh, of, of what he practiced on during weeks at, um, at another podcast that I listened to, Matchpoint Canada. And uh, it sounds like he's had a uh, fantastic uh, off-season and he's ready to go. He's, 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 uh, he's sounding very confident. And I don't believe that he gets, uh, that, that he plays with the crowd anyway. Uh, he's one of those guys who just goes onto the court and, and tries to get things done. So if a, if a, if a player like that uh, has to play a player like Tsitsipas, for example, who, who does usually draw energy from the crowd, uh, and, uh, and he finds himself, and Tsitsipas finds himself a set down and 4-1 down uh, in, a, in the third round or fourth round of U.S. Open, for example. I think uh, I think Raonic has or Sitsipas has a far less chance to come back in a in a crowdless court from that situation against a player like, like Raonic than say another player like a, like a Medvedev. You know, and uh, here's a question. You know, the, the Daniel Medvedev. Uh, you know, we we he drew negative um, reaction from the crowd in the first week of US Open last year, and he used that to his advantage. You know, so, you know, when he's playing a guy like, um, uh, again, when he's playing a guy like Raonic, is he gonna be able to come back from six, you know, six, three, four, one down, if he finds himself in that position, of course. These are just, you know, some possibilities that I'm throwing out. And uh, whereas a guy like uh, Raonic, take the, let's do the reverse example, a guy like Raonic uh, or, or Jan Leonard Struff or Kyle Edmund, the guys, the, the people that I just gave uh, names of earlier, if they're down 6-1-4-2, the chances of them coming back from that situation is the same whether there's a crowd or not, in my view. But a guy like uh, you know, Tsitsipas may have a lesser chance because he, does, he may not get that energy from the crowd if he does get to a break point or a situation where he can mount a comeback. You know, okay, I'm going to devote this next question specifically to Mert because he's worn the hat of, of a coach. So, you know, you've coached tennis at, at, and specifically you've coached college tennis. So that's an environment with very few fans. So, you know, obviously the practice of coaching college tennis uh, it, it in some ways fits with what we're going to see the next several weeks in terms of their, you know, crowds not being a factor. I, I would assume that for a professional coach, you know, coaching an ATP player, certainly in the, like the top 20, 30, 50, you know, part of the deal is going to a crowd, you know, before several thousand people and being able to quiet your inner voice, to calm yourself, you know, to shut out the, the excess outside noise and just being able to uh, operate from a place of deep inner calm. But for collegiate tennis, there isn't that outside environment, at least not usually. So I imagine that coaching tennis at that level is 
it's not the best word, but in a certain sense, it's pure in that you're not really you're not trying to teach the player about uh, crowd noise. You know, maybe about you know not being uh, upset about a lines call. That I mean, that's kind of a universal element of tennis, regardless of whether it's college or pro. But you know, some things about pro tennis do not apply in college. So, what about your experience of of coaching collegiate tennis? Do you think is particularly salient? Uh, can can be applied to this upcoming U.S. Open. Yeah, I I'm not sure if you can if the two are comparable, Matt. Uh, uh, and, and I'll tell you why because in college tennis is actually a very uh, in college tennis matches are played under intense intense uh, partisanship environment. You have a player. Uh, sometimes the you know the, it comes down to a last match or two to decide the winner, and you have a player or two playing on a court. And right on the very next court, by the service line or at the end of the court, you have seven, eight players lined up in the, you know, rooting for, for one player on one side. And you have seven or eight or nine or ten players plus the trainer, et cetera, lined up on the other side of the net, just one court away, half a court away from those players, cheering like crazy for their player. And we're not talking about regular cheering, you know, that, that, you, that you might see even in some... Uh, uh, professional terms, we're talking about cheering like crazy when the other player double falls. Okay, and uh, and that and that and I'm and here I'm drawing you the picture of an environment where there are no fans. I mean, in college tennis, if you have fans, 20, 20 fans in college tennis can make so much noise and can put so much pressure on the opponent. So I, I'm not sure the same situation can really apply. But but what what that, what does apply here is the fact that you are able to as a coach you are able to communicate with the player a lot more often right when there's a, when 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 there's less of a crowd but i'm not sure if at the high uh, pro level a, a player wants to be communicated um, all the time i think you uh, you draw up the plan and and uh, and give your you know you draw up the plan and talk to your player before they step onto the court and while they're on the court the player can of course uh, take an advice or two from their coach during the match and, uh, and maybe to change the, the, um, the momentum or the pendulum swing of the match at certain moments. But, uh, but, I, but I find that uh, saying too much to a player who's kind of, uh, you know, doing well in the match, you know, up a set with one break, six, four, and, and kind of on serve in the second, but seeming to play pretty well. I'm not sure how much you want to say to that player. Uh, you know, the, 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 in that case, it's just a matter of good, you know, encouragement, good play, keep it up, you know, clapping and things of that nature. But, uh, but to players, from a player's point of view, I think uh, the coaching aspect is not going to be, to be that much different. They had their coaches during tournaments before COVID and they're going to have them right here too. Okay, let's uh, dip into the, the U.S. Open, and we don't have a draw sheet, obviously, and, and that's something that will, uh, you know, define a lot of questions about, you know, who we might think has a good chance to make a quarterfinal, semifinal run, et cetera, et cetera, who might be an upset candidate. So we don't have that, the benefit of that, but uh, let's, let's deal with a few questions about how these tournaments might unfold. Let's start with the WTA, which is really more of a wild card in that several very highly ranked players won't be playing. Um, so Andrew, uh, just just taking that part in and of itself, before we get into specific players whom you think might have a, a, a decent shot, 
at the Women's U.S. Open. Just just deal with that particular piece about how, you know, the locker room knows that a lot of heavyweight players aren't going to be there. Uh, I'm reminded of, um, you know, Roger Federer at uh, the 2009 Roland Garros, you know, when he knew Nadal was out. I mean, he could say all he wanted that, oh, I just got to play the guy in front of me. And I mean, narrowly, of course, you know, technically that was true. But like the idea that the psychology of Roland Garros didn't significantly change after uh, Robin Soderling beat Nadal. I mean, no, no one would, would be able to say, oh, it's just the same tournament. Uh, you know, that the, the, the context and the pressure of the matches Federer was playing in that second week changed a lot. So how much, Andrew, in your estimation, does the absence of several heavyweight players in your mind uh, alter in any meaningful way? And maybe it doesn't alter it that much at all. But how, how, how do you uh, grapple with that particular question for the WTA side of the U.S. Open? I don't know, because as we've discussed in the past, the the WTA in the last um, five or six years or so really hasn't been a very stable tour in the sense of, you know, if you think, if you think of the top 16 seeds, you, 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 you can't pencil 12 of them in for the, the round of 16 and five of them in for the quarterfinals and three of the, the top four in for the, the, the semifinals. So there's been a little bit of a any given Sunday aspect to uh, the semifinalists and finalists in the WTA Tour. So I don't think it's going to have as much impact as the absence of two of the big three will have on the ATP side. I'm interested in what Mert thinks about that. We're talking the ATP side, right? Right. We're now, talking correct? the WTA. And so the, the on the WTA, the the, the, the the randomness of the way that the right. women's draws have played out, to me, makes the absence of some of the top players less impactful. Yes. No, no, you're right. I, 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 I thought I heard you say ATP at the very end there. That's, That's why right. I got confused for a second. But yes, uh, Andrew, you are right that uh, it should be uh, it should make it less impactful because we had a variety of champions and, and, uh, and uh, winners in WTA before. I do, however, believe, uh, and this is not in opposition to anything that Andrew said, I do believe that uh, this is a golden chance for a couple of players perhaps to grab their, you know, for, for to grab either their first uh, major title or to put another major title under their belt. And, uh, you know, Serena and Osaka are going to be there, obviously, so they have a good chance to win. But without uh, players like Barty, Halep, and, and Svitolina Andrescu, uh, I think you got to look at a player like Pliskova, who, uh, who might finally get that first uh, major victory under her belt. And this is a golden chance. You know, this, this is a surface that she does well in. Apparently, I, I don't know, I'd like to hear more players uh, make comment on this before I say anything, but apparently the surface is faster uh, right now in the in, in the in Cincinnati, and the U.S. Open is going to be played on the same course. Although Ash and Armstrong are not going to be used uh, this week, but nonetheless, the courts seem to be faster, according to a couple of experts so far. If that's the case, uh, you know, for Pliskova, this is a golden chance to finally grab that first title. And the fact that she doesn't have to, she may not have to beat 
um, two or three or four of the players who have been doing well over the last two or three years to get that first title is an advantage. You know, it would be one thing if she has to, if the draw is made and, and the beginning of the two weeks, it looks to Pliskova like she has to go through, I don't know, Svitolina and Barty and Serena to win the title. Uh, instead now, you know, Barty and Svitolina are not there and she has to go through Serena and two other players. I think that does make a difference. You know, in terms of making, you know, playing that one big match, uh, Pliskova can do it any time, but uh, to, to grab her first major title, it is an advantage to a player like Pliskova. Uh, you, you know, some, some other names. I mean, take a, take a player like, uh, you know, Kvitova also has, has uh, less of a obstacle here to reach the last, uh, to, to reach the last weekend. And how about a player like Madison Keys, you know, who, who can catch fire and all of a sudden play a string of three or four very good match, matches but then, you know, then maybe perhaps she has one bad match in, in, along the line and, 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 and then she loses because she has to beat, again, three or four top-notch players. She may not have to do that here. So, uh, you know, to players like that, it could make a, it could make a difference. And, and this is also a great chance for some other players like uh, Rybakina, I don't know, Alexandrova, uh, Zachary, um, even a player like Contavate, you know, she, the, the, the players like uh, of that caliber could reach second week or even um, the quarterfinals in a situation where they don't have to play one of the top nine or ten ranked players in the third or fourth round already. But uh, but that that still doesn't uh, go against what uh, what Andrews just said. You know, we we don't we've had tournaments with the top players. We've had majors with the top players. And we still had lower ranked players or unexpected players reach the semifinals, reach the finals, or even win the title. So it does have, uh, you know, this is only in addition to what uh, Andrew said earlier. I was, uh, at the base, he's 100% correct. I agree with him. On the women's side, you've got six of the top 10 uh, confirmed out. Um, but, you know, Murd is right. There are a lot of. There are a lot of players who have the ability to have troubled those players had they been playing. So uh, I think there'll be a lot of focus on Serena Williams um, and it'll be interesting to see how, how she does and how Venus does in, in the Cincinnati tournament. You know, I'll, I'll, I'd like to tie, perhaps, in a very, very speculative manner, something that we talked earlier. Uh, you know, what if you we get to the semifinals and you have Serena playing a player like Pliskova in the semis in front of an empty Arthur Ashe Stadium? You see, again, I mean, I think having the crowd there would have been an advantage in that, in that setting for Serena but the crowd is not going to be there. I don't think it's going to matter to Pliskova whether the crowd is there or not. So, you know, that's just something that I want to throw in there to, to bounce back at, uh, at our earlier discussion. Of course, it's wildly speculative, but uh, hey, you know, we're offering our opinions here, so that's, that's an opinion. Yeah, I mean, the, it, it, you know, it's uh, just going through this process in real time, 
And it's it's fascinating how speculative this conversation really is because you know we, there's no owner's manual for this. There's no roadmap for this. And this is a tournament being played under extraordinarily unique circumstances. So you know it, it, it just occurs to me how much of this is speculative. But I'm, but obviously speculation is what really this this podcast is about. Given where we are, I mean that that's what we're left with. We're left with speculation. Um, let me ask this. Uh, you know, the, the Australian Open was the last tournament of significance to be played. So, Andrew first, then Mert. Uh, how much, and of course, you know, it's, it, the Australian Open, it was, of course, on hard court, as is this U.S. Open. So, it's not as though players have played on other surfaces in the, the intervening months. It's going to be basically jumping from one hard court major to another over a span of seven months. How much do you think any results at the Australian Open uh, might be carried over, uh, especially if there is any kind of rematch from the, the latter rounds of, of the Australian Open. And this goes for both the WTA and ATP. How much do you think any Australian Open meeting might loom large in terms of how players process and react to a given encounter at the U.S. Open? Zero. Uh, I'm behind Andrew on this one. Zero. I, uh, I hate to keep my comments short, but yes. No, nothing wrong. Nothing wrong with a short answer. Okay, I had another question ready. Ha- have to be ready for those short answers. So well, let's deal with this one. Given the you know very unique backdrop to this U.S. Open, uh, imagine if any of like a, a player outside the top twenty, top thirty wins it. Uh, it. You know, are you going to react to that and say, and this is not an asterisk conversation. It's more of wow, you know, I really could have imagined that player winning the tournament or, wow, even even with everything being so unusual, I still never would have seen it coming. Uh, you know, pick a player from either basket, uh, you know, in terms of someone outside the, the, the established power structure whom you can naturally see winning the tournament and grabbing it under these weird circumstances uh, or someone who, you know, you can even now think, fairly confidently, nope, it's not going to happen. Any thoughts in either of those two directions uh, for either of you? Andrew first. Well, so, you know, I remember Jelena Ostapenko winning the French Open uh, a couple of years back, you know, from I I think she was the 49th ranked player in the world and just went all the way and, and, and took the title. So, it can happen. It obviously hasn't happened on the ATP side, but a side of the draw is going to be open and perhaps someone like Taylor Fritz, for example, could just make it, you know, make a name for himself in the, the U S open. It could happen. I mean, one of the reasons why I don't think asterisks may asterisks make any sense is this could be the first of nine majors won by uh, Felix Auger-Aliassime or, or, or name another player. So, I mean, Tsitsipas is, is higher ranked, but y- you, you could have a young player uh, who's, who's been making his way up and who's put it all together during the, um, the off, you know, this, this induced off season 
who then uh, makes his way through or her way through the first three or four rounds and does what Chilich did in 2014 in, in the, the last three matches he played, including a semifinal against Roger Federer. He dropped zero sets, just, just completely knocked off Berdyk, uh, Federer, and um, then um, I'm blanking on who he played in the, in, in the final. Nishikori, he played in the final, won, won nine sets in a row. So, you know, that, that could be the start of five to, to nine majors won by a player that we didn't see coming. And then with hindsight, we would claim that we did. Yes, uh, Andrew, you, uh, once again, I'm, uh, I'm on the same page with you on all of these. I, I do believe that uh, there are some players that, you know, perhaps uh, have a better shot simply because they, again, they may not have to, uh, to, to face, um, I don't know, three or four top-notch major players. But on the women's side, uh, I'm 100% with, with, with Andrew. But, uh, you know, I believe your question was, uh, Matt, someone outside the box winning the title, right? Uh, you know, I, for example, I, 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 would, I would say for a player like Arina Sabalenka, who can, um, with her type of game, powerful, big strokes, and on a, on a given day who can, you know, wipe the opponent off the court, so to speak, and, and, uh, and, and roll over them in the, in the way that Ostapenko did it at the French Open uh, and, and, and create a huge surprise. This is probably a better opportunity to do it because, uh, she, because she, you know, she may have, simply because she may have to face less players and she may have to uh, keep up that level through maybe three or four matches, but not necessarily every set. Maybe have a down down period of four or five games, but then pick, pick the level back up and win the match. Uh, when you play against three or four top-notch players in a row, you cannot afford that. But if you play, you know, three or four matches where one or two players are at your level or what you mentally consider to be at your level or lesser level, then, then it's doable. But on the men's side, I could, uh, I could understand if somebody argued against Andrew or me uh, saying that, well, no, it's not the same when two of the big three are missing because, look, if you look at the last uh, so many majors, that you always find the same three names in the semifinals or quarterfinals, and a player usually has to go through both two of them to get to the title, et cetera. I can understand that argument completely. For example, um, you know, if, if on the men's side we were to pick a player like let's take Oger Aliassim, for example, that uh, that Andrew just gave the example of. You know, here Oger Aliassim, if he was to, you know, stun the, the tennis world and win his first major title at uh, at the age of twenty, uh, he may have to go through, you know, maybe Bautista Agut and and Tsitsipas and Dominic Team in his last three matches to win the title. Okay considering that Djokovic somehow got upset somewhere, okay? Or you can replace team with Djokovic. If he's on, if he's on the other side, he may have to play, you know, Kachanov and Bautista Agut and Djokovic to claim the title if team happens to lose early. So, whereas in, in another situation, he may have to face team uh, Rafa and then Federer three in a row or, you know, 
take out Rafa and put Djokovic or take out Federer and put, uh, put him in there. And that's a, that's a tougher task to accomplish. So on the men's side, I can understand the argument that, uh, that it makes it more likely for an outside the box player to break through. But uh, once again, the players that we would look at saying, okay, they have a chance to break through this tournament are probably the same players that we would mention if the big three were all playing here. We would still say, okay, these are the players that have a chance to break through. So the, 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 the accomplishment of winning seven matches in the majors and grabbing your first major title is, uh, is a daunting task, uh, regardless of whether you face one less top-notch player or not. Can I follow up? Because uh, I, I, to build on, on, on what Mert was saying, um, I, I, I think that his description of the players that you might expect to be there towards the end stages of, of the tournament speaks to this sort of idea of stability that on the ATP side for a long time, it's been more or less the same names towards the end of uh, a tournament. Whereas on the WTA side, it's you know, typically been more of a mix. Um, my expectation has been that that pattern would switch as we moved into the coming decade. That there were uh, several players, Andrescu, Barty, Osaka, who have the promise of, of being present towards the end stage of, of tournaments each time, whereas the, on, on the men's side, as the, as the big three eventually fade. I mean, they, they, they don't all have aging pictures of themselves up in the attic like Dorian Gray. Um, you, you, you would start to see more of a, you would see less stability on, on, on the men's side. Um, so I think that the, what that kind of does is it, it, it makes this US Open, I think in some ways unique um, in that, as I think we've already said, it's really, really hard to predict what's going to happen. It's always the case with a, with a tennis tournament, but really expect the unexpected. Okay, uh, we're winding down here. Um, one other thing I really wanted to make sure to ask about in this podcast is that, you know, for certainly for a number of Americans, they're not going to fly to Europe for Roland Garros which means that essentially this U.S. Open is, I mean, and we, and we use the term, well, this is the most important tournament of the year for a player. But in this case, I mean, it's literally the most important tournament of the year because it's pretty much the only tournament that, that these players might play, uh, you know, at least since Australia. It might be the only tournament of significance that these players are going to play in like a 10-month block. You know, so like there's not like the next tournament to be played, at least for some of these players this U.S. Open is really going to exist on an island for them. Uh, and, you know, Andrew, you mentioned Taylor Fritz. I mean, I, you know, may, maybe he'll travel to Europe for Roland Garros, but, I mean, it's, it, that's certainly not a, a, a high-stakes proposition for him. Uh, so, you know, it, because this U.S. Open exists on an island in many ways, it's not really occurring in the context of a normal tennis calendar and the normal weekly rhythm that we usually have on both tours. 
How much, if at all, does that uh, play into uh, what, what we might see at the U.S. Open uh, coming up? Andrew first. I guess that it, it's just another ingredient in a casserole uh, of uncertainty. Or uh, what was, what was the, the expression that, that Mert used, a pool of uncertainties? I think that you know, having you know been involved in you know first of all Pete Bodo's uh, tennis community from the the mid two thousand onwards into reporting on tennis and uh, doing some of these podcasts, there's a sort of an intensity of 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 watching it, and obviously it, 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 the, the the level goes up for people who are participating. But just, uh, I, I think this time it's sort of more like, you know, be happy that it's happening, sit back and enjoy it, expect the unexpected. And, you know, you, to a certain extent, you, you, you can sort of obsess about legacies and number of titles won and, uh, you know, chances for people to break through. This, this time round, it feels like it's... Uh, Hey, the, the, this is a one-off. Your phrase, Matt. It's an island. Uh, you know, just look at it as a uh, a thing that is likely never to be repeated. We hope it's never going to be repeated. We hope that by the time the the U.S. Open rolls around in twenty twenty one, things are on on a much more stable footing. So expect the unexpected and enjoy it. There are just uh, so so many unknowns, um, you know. Again, about the players, some some players we know nothing about how their off season went. Uh, you know, some players who may come in not feeling so uh, ready to play, and uh, may fade away quickly. But uh, but for 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 players that you're speaking of of, um, of Matt, yes, uh, you know, this is an important opportunity uh, to say the least. Uh, I'm guessing that you mean you're talking about again. Fritz was mentioned, but maybe you know a guy like Riley Opelka, or or a guy like uh, John Isner, right? And uh, and yes, for them it is it is a shot. And and you know t let's take a guy like John Isner. I mean, assuming he has no injury type of injury problems and he's ready to play, you know, here's a guy who could possibly. Have a chance to to win his early rounds in three sets, four sets, and maybe get to the fourth round or quarterfinal and not have to play a five setter. You know, if he if he wins, maybe he can get he can get through that in three or four sets too. And all of a sudden, he finds himself in the semifinals, uh, not having played any five setters and physically feeling like he can go two more matches and win the title. Yes, for for him, it's going to be a tremendous opportunity because there's no beyond that. He's not going to, you know, he's not going to do, he's not going to be able to have the same uh, uh, performance at the French. You know, it's just not going to happen for him. It's very highly unlikely, let's put it that way. But, uh, but for him, it's going to be a one-off. Or, or take a guy like Shapovalov. And, um, uh, you know, he's, he's not likely to do well at the French. Okay, on clay, he hasn't done well, so he hasn't done well at all. So the U.S. Open is his opportunity. And uh, can he catch fire uh, in case he gets to the third round, fourth round, enough to win, you know, maybe we'll play one spectacular match against a top-notch player, but then in the quarterfinals, 
or semifinals not have to play another top-notch player after that or maybe play another newcomer to the semifinals and have a chance of that kind. So, yes, for some players, it certainly means more than the other. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I agree with your, um, with your desire to, to underscore that point. Okay, last question, and that is, you know, if you just had uh, two minutes to talk to a group of tennis fans who, you know, are struggling with how to process all of this, struggling how to assign a certain level of meaning to, to what's going on and what might happen in the, in the next several weeks, what would you tell them? And, and Andrew, I mean, you kind of got at that question by saying, hey, you know, let's just sit back, relax, and enjoy. Uh, but, you know, if you had just some time to – Give a, word, a, a brief word to tennis fans in terms of how to maybe uh, how to make this experience easier and more enjoyable for fans who can't be there at the Billie Jean King USCA National Tennis Center. What, what would you say if you had a couple minutes? Sorry, you've got we've got a thunderstorm just sort of kicking off in the background here. Uh, I I think in, you know in, in, enjoy it and accept what happens. Uh, the you know, there is the possibility that uh, Djokovic will um, you know continue his push to to get closer to Nadal and Federer at the summit, but he may not. Um, and you know we may have someone new who's a one-off on the ATP side uh, or wins the first of many on the women's side. Serena could finally catch. Margaret Court, um, or not, or, or we, and again, and once again, we could have someone like Osaka, you know, adding to uh, majors that she's won already, or there there could be a glorious one-off. Maybe Joe Conter can win for, one for Britain. So uh, accept it, enjoy it, and and have fun with it. Um, my two minutes. It may be probably not, would not last two minutes, but my my uh, the so-called talk to those tennis fans would be, uh, you know, if you're a hardcore tennis fan, if you're the kind of tennis fan that follows the what what's going on in the tennis world week to week like we do, uh, we'll see you see you at the U.S. Open. You're going to watch uh, matches and you're going to enjoy, and you are going to try to appease some of the hunger of watching tennis that you've been experiencing over the last few months so it's a great time for for people like us you know we once again here we are watching a, a, a very big tournament in the in in the, in the form of Cincinnati in New York followed by two weeks of a major you know tennis is back we are full of joy and uh and for the but for the casual tennis fan who tunes in you know usually during the majors and uh and just watches uh to get their dose of Serena or or Novak, or Roger, or Rafa, well, guess what? This is your chance to widen your scope and discover the rising stars of the future. And uh, sit down and enjoy the major, like that casual five or six matches of major that you watch every year. And there, who knows? There may be a new name, a new star that will catch, that will grab your attention and will somehow convert you or start on your way to being converted from that casual tennis fan to the people that we are. He is Mert Ertunga. You can follow him on Twitter at Mertovs, M-E-R-T-O-V-S-T, the letter T, desk. And he blogs about tennis at his tennis blog. He also does uh, tennis podcasts in multiple languages. So you want to follow him on Twitter for the latest tennis analysis. And uh, Andrew Burton, you can follow him on Twitter at Burton A D. 
And uh, we want to make a special note that with the double hurricanes uh, slated to hit the Gulf Coast next week, Andrew, stay safe. Uh, you and everyone in, in Houston, your family, uh, we're definitely praying for minimal damage and, and that uh, Houston, which you know has experienced hurricanes in recent years, uh, is going to be able to manage all of this. So, Andrew, stay safe. Thank you. That's it for this edition of the Tennis with an Accent podcast. We'll have podcasts during the 2020 United States Open. It's a brave new world. It's an uncertain world. We hope that wherever you are, you will enjoy the tennis and you will stay safe along with your families and your loved ones. That's all for now. <laughs>